This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. Season 9, Episode 48. This is Writing Excuses, Neurobolics of Characters. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Mary. I'm Howard. And we have special guest star, Corey Doctorow. Howdy. Yay. Corey is one of my favorite people in science fiction and fantasy. He is all around awesome, and he knows brilliant things. So this was a concept he pitched for our podcast this time about why we care about characters when they don't really exist. Do you want to give us a... Sure. So it's, a, it's kind of an interesting question when you think about it. Why are books entertaining? Um, because nothing that happens in a book is real. Uh, and yet we get emotionally invested in things that we know aren't real. We, we read stories about um, imaginary people to whom terrible things happen, and we have these kind of limbic responses to them where we cry and we laugh and our heart rate races and so on. And, you know, when you think about it, the most tragic moment in the most melodramatic narrative, you know, Romeo and Juliet kicking off, had less consequence than the death of the yogurt you ate with your breakfast this morning. Because <laughs> yogurt was actually alive at one point, and now it's dead, and Romeo and Juliet never lived. And I have a theory about kind of where this all comes from. I have a theory that um, the way that we understand other people is by trying to model them. And I think that's pretty orthodox, that, uh-huh. we, that we construct models of other people. And um, that those models uh, are how we experience empathy, and we, we imagine not directly w- what someone is feeling, but we take our model of that person and we imagine what they would say or do or f- experience if something that matched up with what we can see out in the world, you know, so you fall and trip your leg. I imagine your model of you falling and, and, and breaking right. your leg. And, and, and that's where my empathy comes from. And I think that our brains don't readily distinguish between imaginary people and real people. And I think there's probably good reasons for that. Y- you want to be able, for example, to model people who you're not sure are real. I think I saw some people up there, they look like rough customers, you might want to stay clear of them, is a thing that you probably want to model right. in, in your, in your uh, daily life. Um, you also want to be able to model people who aren't there anymore. You want to be able to model people who are missing. So pe- what, what would so-and-so do if, if she were here? You want to be able to model what people would say even though they're dead. You know, what would Grand say if she could see me now? All of those things mean that we don't have hard distinctions between real people and fake people in, in our brains. But what's interesting to me is how this, what this implies about writing. Because what I've found is that when you write characters, uh, when you start writing, it feels like um, a game you're playing with yourself. It feels mm-hmm. like you're playing dolls with yourself. Like, uh, hi, how are you? Well, I'm just fine. I'm fine too, right? It, it feels like... Uh, it's actually how my process works. It feels very the, contrived yeah, at the beginning. You haven't seen Howard's dolls. He's yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you really are at the start of it. You really are just making up these people from whole cloth. But what I think happens is that as you write the character, the model in the back of your head starts to flesh itself out. And so you get to know the character better. And then you get a kind of weird free space optical link between parts of your brain that don't normally directly talk to each other. So you write words on the, on the screen or on the page, and your eyes see those words, and they, and they push it back into your subconscious as data about people. And the part of your brain that builds models of people adds that data mm-hmm. to, the, to the model, 
And then when you query your subconscious for what would this person do, your subconscious kind of does a combination of asking the model and also doing that artificial, hi, how are you? I'm just fine. How are you? And that, ex that experience becomes more and more realized as you work through the prose. And you eventually get to this point, or I do when I write, where it feels like the, the engine's caught. And where the, this, is, this is why I think, I used to think it was very precious when writers would say, oh, I tried to get my characters to do this, but they wouldn't. And what I think that really actually means is, I tried to access that sense of the engine going while I was writing and make the characters do this. And when they did, the engine started to choke. It started mm -hmm. to feel again like a contrivance. And, and it didn't have that ring of truth that you get when you imagine people doing things that are consistent with your model of them. So if you try to imagine your, your gruff old grandpa, you know, um, uh, in a tutu doing the dance of the sugar plum fairies, it, it doesn't feel real the way it may feel when you try to imagine him extolling the virtues of Smucker's Jam. So. Um, <laughs> I knew a guy, I went to summer camp with a guy who uh, was severely brain damaged. He'd had epilepsy since he was uh, very small and it had continued to spread. And um, about the time he was 14, not long before he died, they, as, as a kind of last ditch attempt, they split his corpus callosum mm -hmm. um, so that the left half and his, the right half of his brains were electro electrically isolated from one another. And he had this weird thing where if he covered one eye, he could tell you what something was, but not what it was called. And if he covered the other eye, he could tell you what it was called, but not what it was. But when he enunciated what it was, the, heart, the half of his brain that wasn't electrically connected to the part that knew what it was uh, could hear it. And so he could, went by, by um, externalizing his monologue, his internal monologue, he could reconnect the halves of his brains that were electrically isolated through an acoustic free space link. And I think that when you write, you have a, 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 an electrical link between the parts of your brain that's, that's light mediated, where you, you read the words that you're writing, and parts of your brain talk to each other. And so that's my half-assed theory about it. And where it gets really interesting is with fanfic, because what I think uh -huh. happens with fanfic is that just because, in the same way that just because grandpa is dead or someone's not in the room anymore, you can still access your model of them, when you close the, the pages of the book, if the book right. has done its job, those characters continue to live on in your head. And so it's totally natural to want to explore what their subsequent adventures would be. And it's the same reason that the author... With you. With, with you, right. <laughs> right. Well, with you or, in your, or, or to your specification, right? right? It's, you are able, in a, you know, that they, the job of a writer in some important way is to take a model from her head and put it in your head. See, this is really interesting to me as someone who... Um, whose career was dominated by doing official fanfic, right, right. basically. Um, when I sat down to write these characters, like people ask, was it hard? Um, and I would say, you know, the main characters that I've been reading about for years, no, it wasn't hard. Mm -hmm. um, it was like, I always described it as my high school buddies, sitting down saying, how would my high school buddies act? And, you know, these characters, a uh, number of them was just like, bam, nailed them right off, straight out, no problem at all writing these characters. <clears throat> Others, some of the other characters, were harder. Um, right. They were newer characters. They were very different. Um, and I hadn't read their books a dozen times like I'd, I'd read the first characters. But that's a, a really interesting, just looking at how 
how my experience was. That's like dead on how my experience was writing the Wheel of Time. I think what's, what's weird is that, uh, Corey, when you first pitched this idea to me mm -hmm. uh -huh. yesterday morning, one of, the, one of the examples you got you gave is, you know, uh, the example of, you know, if you, you tell somebody about a person who is imaginary or whatever, uh, and the example was, you know, hey, I saw a guy in a checkered shirt up ahead with a machete, and he, and he looks, he looks kind of dangerous. Um, I saw a guy in my head with a checkered shirt and a machete, and for just a moment, chills ran up my spine, and I realized that you are a jerk <laughs> because you're you're poking my metabolism with your words. Sure, and that's what I mean. That's what it is, right? It's this manipulative process, and I think that like this 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 way of thinking about how we experience other people explains a lot about um, uh, stereotyping and racial prejudice and so on. You have these incomplete models and you query them in a kind of lazy way without acknowledging their incompleteness. And you say, well, what do I know? What hearsay do I have that has put flesh on the bones of this imaginary person? Um, and uh, without, without being critical about what your subconscious returns when you try to predict their actions, you come back with these very stereotyped or cliched uh, ways of thinking about people, and it's only when you interrogate those models and when you say, well, what are the exceptions and how exceptional are they, and to what extent do I have confirmation bias when I put, when I put flesh on the bones of someone who I know very little about, so I only notice those things that, that fit within the stereotype and so on, that, that you actually get past that kind of reflexive and not very thoughtful way of thinking about other people. I'm going to have to listen to this episode like <laughs> yeah. a dozen times. Because, I mean, just in that last sentence, and this is just sort of a process aside for you, dear listener, just in that last sentence, you skirted across four disciplines in which there's two hours of reading in order to make sure that you understand what Mr. Doctorow really Aww. said. No, seriously. You, you, you touched on confirmation bias. Sure. Oh, there's... Yeah, yeah. That, that whole, mm -hmm. that whole like... But I'm that, not saying we need to open that can of worms. The, but way, wow. the way that your brain fools you is intimately related to why you care about fiction. Right? See, one of the things that you, you were saying makes me think that actually that this is a survival trait, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. because if you cannot empathize with an imaginary character, a cautionary tale is going to be much less effective. Because one of the things that you know, we, we talk about this uh, in, in children's theater a lot, that people dumb down fairy tales, and that that is doing children a great disservice, because they were originally cautionary tales. Mm -hmm. And that it makes me think that actually what we're doing with fiction is that we are tweaking a survival trait for jollies. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh yeah, like in the same way that a cat in the same way that a cat releasing the mouse over and over again yeah. is exploiting a bug in its cognition, right? It right. gets a brain reward every time it catches the mouse. How do you maximize your brain rewards? Let the mouse go and catch it again. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, it's it is it is masturbatory in the non-pejorative sense, right? It's like how, there's a thing that gives me a brain reward. Uh, because it has some context in which it's pro-survival, when it's not counter-survival, I'll just do it over and over again, even if it's not actively pro-survival. I'm going to stop us here for our book of the week, which actually, Corey's going to tell us about one of his books sure. um, and where, they, where people can get it. Yeah, so uh, I, for the humble ebook bundle, I commissioned an audiobook adaptation of my novel, Homeland, and uh, that's the sequel to my novel, Little Brother, and I had Will Wheaton read it because he appears as a character in it. And, um, and so that was pretty fun. Uh, it, the, the book has got um, some aftermatter and some formatter that uh, I'm, I'm really proud of. Uh, Aaron Swartz, who's uh, one of the founders of Reddit 
and one of the creators of, of RSS, which is one of the core technologies under the internet, and who killed himself just before the book came out mm -hmm. because he was facing 35 years in prison for taking too many books out of the library at MIT for, for downloading automatically scientific articles at MIT. Um, he wrote one of the afterwords to it. He, in fact, helped me write the book. I, I, I got to this point where I wanted to describe a next generation uh, uh, political campaign, election campaign, and I wrote to all these people I knew who really got uh, technology and election campaigns, people who worked on the Obama campaign and so on, the Dean campaign, and all I got back was really sort of inside the beltway, inside the box thinking, and I wrote to Aaron, it's kind of a last ditch attempt because I knew he'd thought about this somewhat, and a day later he sent me back not just some thoughts but an actual like shovel-ready copy that went right into the book. So I, on that basis I asked him to write me an afterword, and he wrote me this, this wonderful afterword about SOPA and PIPA and the fights we've had over for internet freedom. And as I say, he died not long before the book came out, but his brother Noah went into a studio and read his afterword mm. uh, for the book as well. So you've got Will's reading and you've got Noah's reading. And then also Jacob Applebaum, who's one of the core WikiLeaks volunteers and who lives in, uh, in exile in Berlin, went into the studio run by the guy who founded Atari Teenage Riot, who was his, uh, his engineer. Uh, and recorded his afterward as well. So it's, it's quite a kind of, it's got a lot of different interesting stuff in it. There's five minutes of uh, Will reading Pi, which is pretty exciting. He skipped, there's, there's, uh, there's, he reads 100 digits of Pi, which is one thing, but there's a, a later bit where there's 1,000 digits of Pi, and I did upload the outtake where he goes, oh, Jesus, Corey, and then he, then he just, he kind of, he and the director go back and forth a bit, and he says, um, I, I think he's, he changes it to, imagine a long string of random sounding numbers, which I guess is okay. Um, the reading is the hands down the best reading I've ever gotten. I've been read by some from very good uh, readers, including Mary, who's read some of my work. But, but boy, Will just, just hit it out of the park. I really like Will's reading of books. Something about it just works for me. Yeah. His red shirts, I just loved. Yeah. Um, where, and so. where can we get that one? So you can get it as a DRM-free MP3 download on my website at craphound.com for $15. Okay. And it's not on Audible. It's because, not available on Audible. Um, at Corey um, does not like DRM. Yeah, and, so they, and they won't yep. carry my books. So you, have to, you can go and get it from Corey. Uh, and Corey, on your website, they can also download ebooks right. of your books. Um, Gratis, yes. yes. Under um, Creative Commons licenses. Yep, That's so right. you can, you can e read any of Corey's books. They are fantastic, and you can get them for free. And there's a whole bunch of other audiobooks that yep. you can get as MP3 downloads. I actually tricked Amazon into carrying the audiobook if you prefer to buy it that way. It's not in their Audible catalog, but I, I put it up through CD Baby as a spoken word album, uh. and they <laughs> snuck it into iTunes. <laughs> and into Amazon. Uh, I, I, I don't know how long it's going to last there because they do have this thing where they'll only, so Audible is the only supplier of audiobooks to iTunes and they will only carry them if they have, if they have DRM. So I have a 15-hour spoken word album on, uh, on iTunes uh, that you can download that has is no Is there DRM a content warning? Have the songs been bleeped? There is a, a there, well, there is a content warning because there's, there's, there's um, uh, some, some dirty words in the books. Well, there's and a, there's like a thousand numbers. Yeah, and there's a thousand numbers. Right, and depending on your encoding scheme, that might be some really dirty words. So I'm going <laughs> <laughs> like to... That, like that old joke about the prisoners? Yeah. 35! <laughs> oh, you know how to tell a joke. Yeah. Let's move this back towards storytelling. Um, I'm actually going to point at Mary, because this sounds a lot like some of the things you talk about with puppetry, with your job being to make us care about a sock. 
and you make us care about like one when, a napkin. She's done it yeah, with a napkin. She's done it with, a napkin. She's done it with two little oh, balls. She's, she can she can make us care about that. Yeah, and this is one of the things we talk about in puppetry a lot. Um, that part of what is going on with puppetry is that you are making a bargain with the audience to mm -hmm. believe that your character is real. And after walks on stage, they are obviously believing, I mean, obviously living. So the buy-in that the audience has to make is not whether or not the character is living, but just are they that character. With puppetry, you have to go one step further. You have to believe that they are alive. And because of that, you invest part of yourself in the character. The death of a puppet on stage is significantly more profound. Uh, it has, ten has a tendency to affect an audience to a much greater degree because they've invested more of themselves mm. in the character. And when the, it stops being animated, it, it, it is literally dead. Whereas an actor, you know that they're going to get up and take a curtain call. Right, right. That's fascinating. You know, I, I just had a thought as you were talking about this, and uh, you know, I was imagining a little bobbly eye, uh, you know, the two eye pieces, mm -hmm. the puppet that you made. Yeah, I'm, I'm a cartoonist, and um, the uncanny valley, uh, where you know pictures get more and more real and more and more believable, we identify with them more and more, and then all of a sudden it falls off because it becomes creepy. And it occurs to me that in this this theory of Corey's, what has happened is we've tried to make it so real, but it's still failing, that the portion of the brain that wanted to imagine it has shut off, and the portion of the brain that wants to accept it as real has rejected it, and it's now in this no-man's land where we're now afraid of it. Well, there's, there's also actually, with, with that specifically, um, with the Uncanny Valley, one of the things, it's another survival trait. What you're, what you're seeing there is that you are recognizing, it, you are having the camouflage reaction. Hmm. That this is, this is, we get this, again, with puppets a lot. Um, your, your brain tries to interpret it as real and alive, and if it is not sufficiently real and alive, then you think, this must be a predator in camouflage. Hmm. You're, you're, de you're designed specifically to look for the discrepancies. That is why Polar Express is so horrifying. Yeah. 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 It's full of predators. <laughs> Those yeah. elves are going to eat you. You know how you make Polar Express better? You watch it on a phone screen. Because uh, all of the, all of the, it's it's only because you see it in HD that Polar Express is so freaky. If you watch it on a screen sort of three inches or smaller, it's it's pretty credible. Well, I right? can totally beat a predator that's three inches tall. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, this is this is really interesting to me because for a long time um, the empathy we have for characters I've heard described to me as you know we it is this sort of. We watch characters go through hard things that makes us more capable of dealing with hard things on our own because we're kind of play acting. Mm -hmm. But I think that what you're saying here actually has a, has a, a different side to it and maybe even more depth to it. Um, I like what Mary said, that we can care more about an imaginary character than a real person because of this investment. Um, and I don't think it is simply this whole catharsis of, oh, they go through pain, I'm now better at dealing with pain. There's something else twigging there. I think that's why dramatic tension works. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, in the, if, if like the, the, the best way to learn how to stay out of trouble is to watch somebody else getting into trouble because mm -hmm. you get all the benefit of experience without any of the downsides, right? And so, you know, the, the kind of core of, of dramatic tension is a person trying to solve a problem plausibly, failing, and things getting worse. And so we, 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 will, we will rubberneck someone else getting into trouble all day long because that there's a there's a huge advantage to us to to kind of watching other people screwing up 
I'm going to have to call the podcast here, even though this is one of the most fascinating ones we've done in a long time. Um, I really appreciate Corey being on it, and everyone go download his books and give them a listen or a read. I'm going to give our writing prompt, because I think that the whole person with the brain, um, two halves of the brain disconnected from one another, is a fascinating idea. And I think you um, readers, or you listeners, can write something really interesting with someone whose brain sides do not talk to each other until the ears hear what they say. So that's your writing prompt. Take that, and you are out of excuses. Now go write. Thanks, guys. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. Locus. 